The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody. This is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast with a slight bit of bronchitis. Forgive my voice. Today, I am interviewing the inter, uh, the founder and CEO of PetDesk, which is a vertical SaaS company located in San Diego, California, that provides products for veterinarians and their pet parents. Taylor has scaled the company to now approaching 20 million of ARR with a headcount of 95. The company is uh, post-Series D within its capital stack. Taylor, how you doing? I am doing great. Also got a little bit of a voice thing going on here. Yeah. Um, we, we'll sound like the Muppet Babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a week ago, I sounded like Elmo. My kids really liked me. <laughs> um, before we really dive into like the nitty gritty, like let's talk about what's really important. And did you see the latest Batman? Uh, I have not. No, I have not seen the latest. But I didn't actually even know it was out until yesterday. When one of my buddies. That's how out of touch I am. What are your What are your thoughts on it? I mean, do you have any? No, I, I like I. I Literally, he just said that there's a new Batman, and I haven't even looked yet, so I have I have no idea. But you're more of a, you're more of a Star Wars guy. I am. I am less comic books. I'm more yeah. I'm more Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, science fiction, fantasy, all of all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> and gamer. And and hardcore gamer. That's right. <laughs> right. And what are you playing right now? Uh, Elden Ring. Oh my gosh. Uh, I think it's for me at least. It's as transformative as Final Fantasy VII was, uh, you know, way back in the day. Oh man, Final Fantasy VII was next, the next level. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, in college, my buddy would sit and watch me play Final Fantasy VII because it was just that good <laughs> to just sit and watch. And it was a story. Yeah, and 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 Elden Ring, like, it's less about the story, but uh, the yeah, I, I I don't know exactly what it is, but they they did something really special. It might. It might be. I'm. It's for sure one of the best games of all time. Like it may be the best game of all time. How many hours can you put up, put on during the week of Elden Ring? Uh, two. <laughs> okay. That's pretty I mean, good, like, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm. You know, I'm getting. I'm getting some time in. I've got some buddies who've already finished it, and uh, you know, I'm. I'm. I'm way behind. But uh, but I, I think that's why I like the game as well. Is I can I can jump in for a little bit, have fun. And it's and it's this evolving story um, uh, that that still works if I you know get super busy and and don't play for five days and I can come back to it. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's really good. It's a nice escape. Yeah. So, so tell me, Taylor. I would for the audience tell us kind of the origin story about you and kind of you know how you how you grew up. I know you were a shy town kid and kind of where, where what got you into the kind of entrepreneurial groove. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I grew up in Chicago, uh, in, in the suburbs, Des Plaines, uh, you know, right next to O'Hare. Um, and, uh, I, I, so I actually, I fell in love with physics in high school. Um, I saw a double rainbow. I was working at a, uh, River Trails tennis center. I saw a double rainbow and it was right when I learned how double, like how rainbows work from a physics standpoint. And I was kind of a know-it-all and I was like, oh, this is it. 
Like I can actually explain everything in the universe if I learn <laughs> physics. I can be the ultimate know-it-all. I was like, this is what yeah. I'm doing. Um, and, uh, and, and so ended up doing physics, uh, in undergrad and, and then went to grad school cause I graduated in 2002 and there was zero jobs. So went, went to grad school to do more how physics. Does it, how does a double rainbow work? Like high level. So basically the way a, a rainbow works, the sun is behind you. The rain is in front of you. The sun, rain is like a sphere, right? The water is right. like a sphere. The, the, the light goes into that sphere, bounces off the back gets ref- and, and, and then gets broken apart, right? And then bounces back and hits your eye. And that's, that's how you see the rainbow. So you see a rainbow across all of the water droplets. Uh-huh. Well, what happens is in that sphere, right? It, it bounces once, comes out, but then some of it bounces in the front of the sphere back again to the back of the sphere and then out again. And so that's what then the double rainbow. And that's why the double rainbow is when you see it, it's always like less bright than mm-hmm. the first rainbow. And an interesting thing, it's also flipped. So you got Roy G. Biv, right? Red, orange, yellow. Right. Well, the double rainbow goes the opposite direction because it's now bounced twice and is and is flipped. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Pulling it back to video games, there's a, a double rainbow in Rocket League, and <laughs> some some nerds got really pissed because the because it wasn't flipped, and so <laughs> the Rocket League designers had to go in and flip the rainbow. They're like, "Okay, we got it, we got it. The physics is right now." Um, <laughs> so anyway, I don't know if we're ever going to get to business at this rate, but no, um, this is great. <laughs> the so yeah, so you know, hardcore physics and and, and doing all of that. I I ended up at a nanotechnology firm. Um, and uh, I had the choice of like, go get my PhD after my master's, go get my PhD in physics or get into business and um, was working for the summer at this nanotechnology firm. And I was like, you know, me, me in the lab and doing the political side of, of research and science probably doesn't doesn't work. I should probably be doing something you know, together, uh, you know, business and technical. And and so um, started at, from the ground at, at that company, ended up running the company um uh after we you know it was just like six years later we built it up we spun off a division um sold it to another company in a cashless merger and uh was running that new division and and realized like i really wanted to go build something my, my myself what the company do uh we made so we made like so there's scanning electron microscopes they basically use electrons so you can go see uh Anything that's really, really small. Um, we were focused on uh, transistors. So that's what your computer chips are made of, right? And they they had finally broken the sort of nanometer, uh, you know, nanotechnology, which is like a, less than 100 nanometers in size. So we made little robots that were automated, uh, or you could manually drive them that would land tungsten probes that had like a 50 nanometer um, probe uh, radius at the end and land them on the transistors in in the actual you know like circuits of you know the chips that Intel makes AMD oh, wow. all of those guys and b- basically they couldn't test the chips anymore because they had gotten so small and so our tool helped them test it so when they would have you know I remember one of them when they came out with the you know forty five nanometer node technology you know they they were at like twenty percent yield. Right. If you're running a, a fab and it's at 20% yield, then uh, you're you're throwing away like 10 million dollars a day. 
of just bad devices. And so you got to quickly get that up to like 50, 60, 70% yield. Gotcha. Um, so, so, so that's what we were doing. Uh, and there was a lot of other like science and cool stuff that was going on. The company was called Zyvex uh, um, materials and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, my best friend, Ken uh, was computer engineer there. And, and, you know, we had, turned 30 and we're like, man, we want to go do some stuff. We had a whole bunch of different ideas. Um, my other best friend and roommate, uh, Aaron, was a, a, a back-end web developer. And uh, we, we we picked one idea, which was a better Foursquare. Um, one of the dumbest ideas. So the super smart idea for us to leave and go build our own thing. Super bad idea to say, hey, we're going to go make a an unfunded competitor to Foursquare at the time. <laughs> right. uh, so we Dennis Crowley had launched um had raised forty million dollars. His offices were literally next to the Mashable offices. Mm-hmm. Um and and we launched in twenty eleven at South by Southwest. He had a Pepsi partnership, an entire block. <laughs> and we had a 10 by 10 booth next to a bell ringer that basically gave everybody ear damage. Like no one would come to our booth. Uh and so we failed like day one. Um, but you know. Being the confident, you know, first-time entrepreneurs, it took us nine months, a year, to figure out that we were really failing. Um, and and then, so long story short, that was a super crazy roller coaster ride. And uh, two things happened. One, my uh, my wife's uncle is a retired veterinarian. From day one, he was like, "Dude, this this is awesome. You gotta you gotta do this." But for veterinarians, they really need your tools. They're really far behind. You know. Being the arrogant first-time CEO, I did not listen to the retired veterinarian, but I should have. He's one of the wisest people I know. And um, and uh, but then finally, when you know, I was googling how do you shut down a business, we've we've totally failed. And I, I looked down, and Molly, um, uh, my my wife and I's dog, uh, who was her dog first, she was missing an eyebrow, and her paws were all chewed up. And I realized I'm a horrible pet parent. I have the technology to solve this. There's probably other others out there like let's let's actually talk to doc and let's let, let's figure this out and uh and that's how he ended up you know making apps for dogs and and software for veterinarians and it's been it's been an awesome ride from there so okay so you guys decided you wanted to build in foursquare that was kind of like a check-in feature right like if i remember correctly you would check in yep. to certain you became like a the king of that particular location whether it be a gym or a, a restaurant and that's essentially was the whole yeah. And so what we, so our brilliant idea was, well, who wants to just check in that you need to actually engage? Like the reason that you go to places and engage with other people. So there needs to be more engagement. People need to like talk to each other at a place. Um, it's a great idea if, if you didn't know how humans work, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> if you just ignored, uh, the, how, what humans actually need. Um, and, and and so this this you know more engaging discussion type of thing at locations uh you know ended up failing what we did have though was technology we kind of you know early pivoted to we we realized oh there is something here where you can have sort of an app within an app so so you can have an app that has all of your local places in it and you want to engage with those places. Maybe you don't want to engage with other people at those places, right? Like that didn't make sense. But but you want to engage with those those places. And so we learned a ton there about consumers and how they think and about apps and about local businesses. And that's what we were able to take. And then, you know, Ken, to, to, this is 100% to Ken's credit. You know, at, at, at one point, I wanted to do it for all 
service providers like mm. haircuts auto like everything and um and, and he was like dude no you gotta <laughs> like we've got to focus down um and and i was like no you know this is uh, you know i kind of did like a steve jobs thing where like i know better than you know consumers and yeah you know the you can always fall into that trap of like oh well we would just create faster horses if you you know talk to the people riding horses and sometimes that's true and 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 sometimes you're just being a a a dumb entrepreneur and i was being a dumb entrepreneur and he and you know he finally got through to me and was like we need to focus down to just one thing let's let's do pet like this is super exciting and definitely they're, they're they're right and and you know, nine months into the development of it, we even focused down further from all of pet care down to just veterinarians, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's what really unlocked the ability to go build something awesome and, you know, best in breed and be successful. So tell me about your customer discovery on kind of understanding like what the opportunity was and where the gaps were that your uh, your product can solve problems. Yeah. So we um, <laughs> we we were... A little bit more hesitant, obviously. So we were like, okay, we've already screwed up, you know, once with our own thing. And then actually in this time frame to like keep the lights on, we like help somebody else start their own thing and we kind of didn't make it there. And and so we said, all right, we we need to really do some smart market research and everything else. Um, so I, you know, I went to to one of the trade shows, WVC in Vegas, talked to a lot of people, tried to understand, you know. The, the technology landscape, all the competitors, what are they doing? Um, and you know, what's the what what's the data needs that we're gonna have and and everything else. And then we did and I, we, we did this for free back then because SurveyMonkey, you know, had this like free version. I don't think they have that anymore, but we um we took out ads on Facebook and LinkedIn and and basically just like ran surveys uh, and we targeted vets, groomers, boarders, and then pet parents. So we could see both sides. Um and 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 the market research was we we already knew had had a pretty good idea of what you would do with an app like you would request appointments and you would track your health data stuff and you know and whatever but we really wanted to understand what's the biggest pain point and so we um uh so we did these surveys we got 300 vets practice managers you know vet techs uh i think about 600 groomers and boarders and then maybe like 400 consumers. Um, and, and it was, you know, they, we had them ranked sort of the different things, features and things, you know, problems that we saw. And I mean, it was like signal to noise ratio. One was way, way bigger. And that was requesting appointments. Like, hmm. uh, it, it became qualitatively, we kind of already knew this, but, but it was great to see that super big signal in, in the quantitative that like, yes, this is, it's 930 at night when you remember to call your veterinarian, but nobody uses voicemail anymore. Right. And then during the day they call you and you're at work. Right. And, 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 and so figuring out an asynchronous way to, you know, request and, del- and, and, and set up appointments, this is what we were going to focus on. And so, you know, we had built the platform before this Foursquare clone thing, you know, with a billion features. We knew now like, okay, one feature, it's to request appointments. Like we're just going to do this and we're just going to be amazing at it. And, and that's where we started. Did you think about like, you know, how is this going to evolve into a company? Um, did you think about like, is this going to be just a feature versus a platform? How did you like, you know, put your head, wrap your head around that? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Had, had definitely learned through some of the other things that like, you've got to build a product and not a feature. 
And so we were um, very, very, very thoughtful in thinking through, can this be more, right? What is the, what is the vision and product roadmap of, of this larger product that we're going to, to offer? Um, but at the same time, you know, one of the traps that you can fall into, especially if you're a product-minded folks, and 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 both Ken and I are very product-minded, is uh, you know, just building too much product, right? And and so we we checked the box that like, yes, we can build into all of these other all this other wallet share of veterinarians. Um, we we also have groomers, and you know, in the beginning it was we have groomers and boarders, and and so you have this large enough market where even if you're just an app that requests appointments, you can make enough money. Um, and, and you can partner up with, with, you know, all of these other folks that, that do email reminder systems and websites and marketing and, and, and everything else. Um, but this is, this is a key point here. I think that it is a really good learning experience. And when things get stressful, you tend, you tend to control the controllables, right? You just, you kind of heard this control the controllables type of thing. But when you're, when you're a founder, you need to understand what your safe space is, because um, you know, if you're an engineer founder, if you're a CTO, your safe space is probably coding, right? And for Ken, mm-hmm. that was definitely it. Was, that was definitely what it is for me. I'm not. I'm not like a sales or marketing person. I'm more of a product person. So my safe space is like designing the product and and figuring out how it can better work and UX and 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 things like that. You know, if you're sales or marketing, that's that's going to be your safe space. So when when times get tough, you're you're gonna like fall into doing those things. But sometimes that is not the right thing to do, right? So in the early days, um, you know, th- th- this is how we ended up over engineering a lot of things because we'd freak out, oh, it's not working, and so I would just start doing product stuff, and Ken would just start doing engineering, and when we really should have been talking to more customers or selling or uh, you know doing these other things that are outside of our comfort zone but are the things that we should be focused on as you know a- as a company yeah so we so how do you define product market fit and how has that evolved over time yeah so i think that there's um, there's multiple stages of product market fit as at least how i've looked at it and how it kind of worked for us um, so I think that there's uh, there's a product that you can sell as the CEO to folks that are already on the other side of the chasm, right? Right. They, like, you know, it's there, there's always some folks who are who have already crossed the chasm before you've even started building, and they just like they like new stuff. They love buying from like a CEO. Like this is you know this new company. Okay, I'm on the cutting edge. Um, but but even then, there's some threshold of like you. It needs to make sense. You, you need to be solving a, a you know a pain point. Um, and so this is most founders in the early days. I think inherently understand this and 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 they they can usually get to this point um where they can make the first 5 10 50 100 whatever you know d- depending on you know how transactional your sale is or not um those first those, those those first few customers but then you need to be able to graduate to a point where you can bring in a director of sales or a really good salesperson and and that person can sell it not as the CEO and founder Right. Mm-hmm. So there's no like extra halo of, oh, I'm buying from the founder or this is like cool. It's like, no, now 
now it it it's really matching their needs. And so a really talented salespeople, salesperson can sell it to somebody who who's maybe already thinking about crossing the chasm, right? Mm-hmm. But 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 still very much uh, you know, a forward thinker about about technology in that space. And then and then the final real stage before you know, I mean, Ken and I, we had I remember we had like over a hundred customers, maybe over two hundred customers when I was like, okay, there's no going back now. Like we're 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 in it. And and that's when, you know, that director of sales, or if you if, if it's a really good salesperson, like maybe you hire some some SDRs and other AEs, whatever it might be, that that now like a regular salesperson can go talk to a a customer that is not really near the chasm and 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 can convince them to buy this technology product that's when you know that that that's like the ultimate product market fit it's like now you've you've really got it um and and you know 5 to 10 people can go sell this thing uh with, without them being you know this like world class salesperson right cuz so we we had Drew early on and he was just awesome bulldog salesperson um, and I made the mistake of thinking like, oh, okay, we've got product market fit. Like Drew, Drew can sell eight of these a day. This is, this is awesome. But then we brought in a bunch of salespeople and they couldn't sell. And, uh, okay. We haven't completely gotten there yet. We need We need a little bit more. Right. And so, so your heuristics around the development of, or the, uh, the range of product market fit or the heuristics are those who the ability to sell the product, not so much as the market adoption, or is that part of the equation? Yeah, and you know, and I think this is where it's interesting because you get a different answer from every single person, right? Right. And I think what colors my perspective on this is that we took such a sales approach to everything. Um, like we only just started doing marketing in the last couple of years in any real way, right? And 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 so everything I looked, you know, whenever I was thinking about anything, it was always can Drew sell it or can the salespeople sell it? It was always from this sort of. That that was the the test for me if if we were doing something right or wrong, right? So I think that's where that comes from. Okay, so you're going into it. How did you like talk? talk so you, you had some initial customer discovery with your, um, you know, with your surveys. You went you went to a conference, and I remember that you went up to some of the old legacy players. You start asking them some questions, and what was the the after kind of thought of the information that you took from those competitors or your soon to be competitors? Yeah, so in that in that first um conference, I mean it was it was pretty obvious. So we had been looking at the dental space. I had talked to some people who were also in the dental space and one thing jumped out at me more than anything else and that was text messaging adoption. So uh in the vet space, it was like 6% of vet offices were were sending texts to remind you to show up the next day, right? This was 2013, by the way. Um and in the dental office, it was 65%. When dentists are eating your lunch at tech adoption, like you're <laughs> pretty low on the totem pole, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and like 98% of clinics were doing postcards. So it was very obvious that that was one huge takeaway. Like, okay, they're really, really behind the times. And then the other, the other big takeaway was um, all of the competitors had been acquired. So all of the like these email portal, you know, web portal systems had been acquired by non-technology companies in the space. And 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 then so all innovation had stopped. And so it was like, oh, this is great. We can come in and 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 really do a lot of a lot of damage here. Um one thing that we did learn though was sometimes an industry is too far behind. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to go from 
we send postcards to there's we put an app in our clients' hands when they haven't gone through the like okay send emails <laughs> all right send text messages like you know do all these other things um, and it, we we didn't realize it realize it at the time but looking back like we we should have thought a little bit about okay if you're that far behind how do you you can't just skip it all and go to the future right mm-hmm. you need to kind of walk them through this this journey. Okay. So you accelerated so you accelerated the industry a little bit uh, too quickly, but then you added some of the features to you did SMS and email as well as just giving the app. We did. And this is yeah, so this was um the next show that we went to. So we went so later in 2013, we went to Southwest Vet Symposium. Um it was just Ken and I at this point. Um we we were living off of ramen and and off of our girlfriends uh and Aaron had gotten married and had a kid on the way so he had to actually go back during this time and and go back to his old job before he then came back to us but um so it was just Ken and I and uh we walked up to the Idex booth Idex is a billion dollar public company and you know they have they 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 have this like email you know, portal reminder system and 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 the practice management system. And there was a marketing manager there, and I said, "Hey, we've got an app. You know, um, is there somebody in business development that I can talk to?" And and she said, "Do you know who we are?" And I was like, "Yeah, you know, you guys have Cornerstone, the 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 PIMS, and and you know, you've got Pet Health Network Pro, the this this email reminder system and portal. You know, thought we could like integrate." And she said. Yeah, exactly. And then turned around and walked away. And <laughs> I realized she like was literally saying like, "Don't you know who we are? Like, how dare right. you talk to us?" Um, and and that was that was the moment. And we had struggled because you know this was we just had an app. And we were just like, "Hey, we're just going to make this awesome app, and everybody's going to love it, and we'll work with all these other folks." And I walked back to to the booth, and I was like, "Ken, forget all these jokers. Like, let's just go build this." Um, and that's when we decided to focus down on vet. Um, that's when Ken took three months and then built basically the entire system, minus the web portal uh, that that all of our now competitors had. Um, integrated with the practice management systems, pulled in the data, did all of that kind of stuff. Um, and and then January one of 2014, that's when we realized like, oh, okay, now we have product market fit. Now we can send postcards because they they all want to send postcards, right? Like to your earlier point, like now now we can send the the email reminders, we can do the text message reminders, um, and we can have the app, so we can give them this full this full system, um, and and that's when Drew came in and and was able to start selling, and then you know we had to add a little bit more to to, to get to the point where your, your random salesperson could could sell, um, but that that was huge, and I, I got I got to stand at the. You know, in IDEX in front of a bunch of their high level executives and tell them the story and thank them for you know, <laughs> enabling us because without that marketing what manager, that? was she there? No, but they were like, we think we think she's still here. We probably know who that was. Uh, yeah. it was a, they, they took it well. Like it was a funny, it was a funny moment. Um, it's a small industry. We all know each other, right? And we're all like friends and competitors and and everything else. So that moment. Was it the fact that there was just kind of like a subtle arrogance that they weren't, you know, minding the fields that you saw that there was an opportunity there? Uh, did it just motivate you just because, you know, you're an underdog and you wanted to, 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 to slay Goliath? What was it about that comment that really fueled you? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say it's a little bit of all, all of the above. You know, I, I was picked on a lot in, in, uh, when I was growing up. 
as a, as a weird kid. I was a really weird kid. Yeah, but and you're like tall and good looking. How did that happen? I was not tall. I was actually scrawny <laughs> and short. Uh, really? And so, yeah. I yeah, grew 11 inches between uh, sophomore and junior year of high school. Yeah, but at least you, you know, weren't like short, fat, and red hair. Like that was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I was still picked on like that, though. Uh, <laughs> okay. You, you're okay. You can empathize yeah. with that. Now yeah. you're like a really, really good looking tall guy. So, yeah, yeah. That came, that came a lot later. My mom always told me, just wait until you're 28 and then, and then your life's going to turn around. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I definitely, uh, I've always used the, um, tell me I can't do something as, as fuel, as I think a ton of founders, right? And a ton of just people in general do. Um, so that, that did get me really fired up. Um, and, and, and I think the, the, but more than anything, I think it was the, the obvious, uh, like blind spot that that arrogance showed, right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you, they all acquired companies that were built back in 2005, right? 2006 and hadn't really been innovated much and definitely weren't being innovated more. And they didn't realize that like we could build the whole system in three months with the new technology. And, um, and, and so where before I was not sure if we really, we, we were still on the fence, right? This was like, this was still six months in and we were still on the fence on, do we really have something here or not? Um, and that was the moment when I was like, oh yeah, we really have something. And, and and then things started falling together because we realized like it was it was interesting. So at the time we thought, hey, everybody, it's an app. Everybody knows that apps are the thing. It's 2013, right? Um, vet clinics are way too busy. They would they would for the first three months they would talk about the app and then they never talk about it again. And so we had to solve this problem of like how do we get all their users to download the app? Well, guess what? A reminder system, sending emails, sending postcards, sending text messages that then all drive them to download an app. And we do it for them. That's what we need, right? And so, not not only was it this like, you know, okay, we want to go, we want to go attack these people, but there were some real product market fit and business reasons for us to do all the things that they were doing. And then it also became very clear that the vet clinics they they didn't want to pay for you know two, three, four different vendors. They wanted one vendor that did all of this patient engagement type of stuff. And so. You know, I remember Ken and I had a long debate about doing postcards. He was like, dude, I did not leave the nanotechnology sector <laughs> to build a technology company and like write to an API from some postcard company. Like this is 1970s <laughs> technology. What are you talking about? And and I and this was, you know, he convinced me to just focus down, right? And this is I I convinced him like, no, we have to do postcards. They will not buy us unless we have postcards. We absolutely have to do it. And he finally gave up and was like, okay, fine, we'll do it. Um and I know that's one of the reasons why we were successful and some of our competitors that were similar to us were not successful. It's because we gave them, you know, sometimes it might not be the solution you want to build, but if it's the thing that your customer really needs and they're not going to buy from you, then you need to build it, right? And it's tough to know, you know, when, when, when that is the case or when, when you're kind of like spinning your wheels and wasting time. But I know for sure, postcards, without postcards, we would have failed 100%. So you're at a position where you started to build out some more functionality. You're, this is probably around the time you started to do your first round, right? Or was that before? Um, we did our first round in 2014, a small... This was like a small round, right? So it was like 225000 from friends and family. Most who weren't friends or family. Um, it was very hard to raise for, for the pet space at the time. Um, and why was that? Just 
addressable uh, market. In, investors thought that it was a niche market. They're like, oh yeah, that small pet market. I think there was some leftover bad taste from pets.com and the you mm. know 2002 implosion and um and you know fast forward and and all those investors are probably like, oh my god, I really missed you know this market went from 30 billion to 120 billion right in, right. The, in this in eight years. Um, and, and then WAG was raising, uh, at the time. So literally every, when I was doing our series seed, so the next round, we raised like about a million. Um, every investor I talked to, they were like, Oh yeah, we just talked to WAG like a week ago. And we either gave them money or said no, cause it's the pet space. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was very frustrating. Um, but I just, uh, I mean, I think with the failure company, you know, the Foursquare clone, this and everything else, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm over a thousand investors that I've talked to, uh, oh, in, sure. in, in one form or, or fashion. Like it's been mm-hmm. a, it's been a long road. So you raise your first round, and now you're trying to figure out how to put a little bit of scale behind your sales engine. So tell me a little bit about how you developed the talk tracks around, um, around selling your product. And onboarding your team and building out your sales system and, and how that came into fruition. Yeah, so this is, um, you know, we so we brought in Drew, uh, who he had helped build um, take lessons in town in San Diego, and he had left, and then um, was coming back to San Diego, and I got him on Angel List, kind of like before he decided what he was going to do next, and I was like, dude, you got to come, you got you got to come work for us. Uh, I got I got really lucky there, and. Um, uh, and he, he, you know, had enough of the director of sales. Okay. I can think about process and build structures and, and think about people, but also like was just a bulldog salesperson who was just going to go out and sell and, and get stuff done. Um, and, and so that, that worked really well. I e- immediately took it off my plate, which is not always the route that you should necessarily do. I don't think, but in this case, um, you know, immediately flipped it over and was like, okay, Drew, like you go sell, like, let's, let, let's just arm you and figure out. Um, and, uh, he had found the challenger sale and, uh, you know, sent me a blog post. We were reading about challenger sale. We read the books and then we became obsessed with the the challenger sale framework. And what is that from a high level? So it's a, um, they did a bunch of research and they and, and they basically found that um, salespeople, they're like seven different archetypes. And the challenger archetype is the archetype that for complicated software type of sales um, is the most successful. And basically, it's, it's a six-step process where you go in, you prove that you know their business really well, you know their industry really well, you reframe their thinking... And so, um, you know, they think that they have a problem over here, but hey, you know what? That's actually a symptom of this problem. And this is a really big problem. And, and, um, and then you take them through like quantifying and, and, and qualitatively showing them the emotional impact of this problem. And then you show them a solution. You still haven't even talked about your product yet. Um, and then you get them to agree. Yeah. That is, that sounds like an amazing solution to this problem that. When I woke up this morning, I didn't even know I had. And then you say, oh, look at our product. It is that solution, right? So they've already agreed to buy your product before you've even talked about your product. Um, it's, and it's that reframe that is, that's the really important part. And, um, and you know, the number one killer to sales is urgency. And this is where Challenger Sale comes in and it creates this urgency because they didn't have this problem before. And now you've shown them it's a huge financial problem. It's a huge emotional problem. And... 
like they need to get on it. Right. And so by the end of that call, they're like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta go figure this out right now. So what is the reframe uh, for the, for your particular client? So in, so we, now we've kind of moved on and we're not using challenger sale as much. We're using this like hybrid of some other things. And, and so I'm not going to get into that because we're, we're literally launching a new narrative. I just had a meeting before this to talk about it. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll I'll tell you what we did. So we did this challenger framework. We had about 19 people at the time. I took Friday, kind of prepped them beforehand, right? Had they all read the book. This is every this engineered everybody in the company, right? Mm-hmm. And and then we did a full day of okay, let's let's figure out what the reframe is, what differentiates us from everybody else. And and um long story short, what it came down to was we realized almost every problem that they had at a practice was a symptom of them not reaching their clients. And we realized that they all thought that it was the client's fault that they weren't coming in. They thought that just by sending postcards and an email that like, oh, okay, I've reached all my clients. They all know that they're supposed to come in and they're just lazy or bad pet parents or, or whatever it is. Right? Mm. And, and so the reframe was, hey, those postcards only reach 20% of your clients. And then, hey, do you read any of your emails? Oh, no, you don't. And you have this huge spam folder and this huge you know, promo folder and everything else. You're probably only reaching 30% of your clients, which means 70% of your clients are just sitting out there wondering what's going on. So, and then we'd go into like, there's a financial impact to that. There's an emotional, you know, like there's too many calls and I'm, and I'm losing clients and yada, yada, yada. But that reframe... Clients are angry, they're stressed. Yeah. That reframe was really like, they had this tool that was a, you know put it on the shelf and it automated some reminders. And I don't even think... They, half the time, they didn't even know the name of the product that they were using. right? And, and so in the morning, practice was working super great. right? But by the time they talked to us, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not talking to my clients. I've got a huge problem. Like I need to get this figured out. And then we could show them, well, we give them an app get them super engaged in the app. And then we send them all these messages and we'll get to 95% of your clients, right? Not 30%. Wow. And so how did you get to the point where you knew that that was the problem? Uh, I mean, it was, it was probably eight hours of the 19 of us sitting there debating. Um, I, I highly recommend reading the challenger sale. It takes you through how you do this process um, at the company and how you build it. Um, but but what, what's super important is figuring out, okay, what's a huge problem? That is new to them because you can't. The, the the problem we fall into a lot of the times is we 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 go for you know okay let's do discovery let's then find the problem that they have and let's show them how our software solves the problem that they have right if they have a known problem they've had that known problem for three years and they haven't solved it right so you having a solution to that problem doesn't matter because there there's no urgency around them solving that problem they haven't solved it right. And so you need to find a problem that you can solve that that is brand new because they're much more likely to go solve that problem than one they already know about. And then the other thing that you have to really figure out, where are you differentiated? Not just a little bit, but massively differentiated from everybody else because you need to reframe them and show them this problem that only you can solve. Because if, if you don't, you can do this really great job of educating the entire industry that they need to go reach folks, right? In this case, but if everybody else has an app and all these other ways to reach, you just you just got everyone to go look at everybody else. And if there's somebody that like does that looks like you and does the same thing, okay, they're going to go buy from that person, right? 
this is this is why we don't we can't use reach anymore because the entire industry has caught up with with us right um and so we're already on to the next thing which is uh combating the commoditization of care and stuff i won't go into all of it so you so you found product market fit you found the story track that worked in selling at scale into into veterinarians and that's around 2016 and that's when we funded you at canal partners and then so to talk about those uses of capitals and that was your series a and then kind of what were the some of the the kind of the the, the challenges and 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 you know and the, the key learnings between you know, scaling from three to five to ten and taking on those additional right uh, um, rounds of capital, specifically around market size and wallet share, and how did you think about that? Yeah, so so it's interesting because you know for us it was it was actually less about wallet share and market size and more like we we had figured out how to sell it right. And um, what we hadn't figured out was uh, how to support it, like the full customer success side of things. Um, you know, early on, you can get trapped by your own success because you, you know, you've sold to a bunch of these folks. They really believe in you, and and so they will, they will be loyal, and you'll be like, oh, I have zero percent churn. Like I hear this from early founders all the time. Like, oh, nobody ever leaves us, right? And like, yeah, nobody leaves you yet, but they're going to leave you if you don't pay attention to it, right? And so so we really use those funds to to build out customer success. You know, we read the the customer success book by Nick Meta, uh, the CEO of Gainsight, right? We were like true believers of uh, of that. Um we built that out. We where we struggled um, was building out that sales organization. So we had figured out how to sell it, right? The narrative and all of those things. We hadn't figured out how do we get SDRs and what do we do with the SDRs and how do we get account executives that can, that can actually sell this way? Um, you know, especially at the price points that we're able to, to hire them on, right? At that, at, we didn't have a ton of money yet. And, and so, you know, we, we had to make that money go, go, go far. Um, and then, and then up until that point, you know, we had like three total engineers. Like Aaron still hadn't come back, and it was like ten and two other engineers, I think. Um, and and so we had to start building out a little bit more of that team um, so that we could we could you know build more of this product. Um, and so a lot of the learnings was around the people management side and just scaling the headcount of a business and 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 that type of stuff. And how did you learn how to do that? By failing a lot, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, I mean, really like we've, you know, we had a lot of turnover, um, especially building a sales team, like an, an SDR team. You know, one of the biggest lessons I learned was if you're going to build an SDR team, just understand the cultural impact it's going to have. Right. So for a long time, 50% of the employees were in the SDR team. Uh, and, and that's high turnover, right? You're, you're hiring by, people by nature of the job. Yeah. Yeah. And you're firing people three, you know, three weeks, sometimes three days after you hired them because you just realize like, oh man, this is just really bad. And and so it's a it's a very difficult culture to 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 manage. And and then you they're sitting right next to engineers and everybody else, you know, and they're seeing this turnover and they're getting worried and um it, it can really infect the the company. Um that and so fortunately you know, I had I had four 
team members that started as SDRs and you know ended up being directors in the company. Um, three of which are still are, are still with the company. One kind of part time, and and another one who just recently left to go on to bigger and better things. Um, uh, but it, it was those four folks that helped that that really helped like build all this infrastructure, and we kind of learned. Man, they were you know super early career folks, and so kind of learned together. Uh, yeah, through through all those failures and just trying to be as smart as we could. So, what were some of the things you did to kind of harness culture with scaling an organization? Yeah. So, first and foremost, I, you know, I'm super lucky that my wife uh, is strategic HR, um, worked for a bunch of big companies, and is just super awesome in what she does. So, she's always been my secret weapon, kind of in the background, and um, you know. Ken and I, when we first started it, like we're we're not naturally like culture people, right? Um, but we knew this was going to be really important, right? We we knew Zappos culture was was awesome, um, and 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 we knew that we had to build something, and so we were very intentional early on to say like, okay, these are our values, and we're really going to think about it, and um, and we're going to hire for it, and and all of that. You know, look looking back. It's those. It's the people that we hired, especially those four that 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 went on to help you know build the business. The you're never going to be able to just like force the culture as a CEO or as a founder group or whatever. Um, you're you're going to have to hire folks that are like minded in you know you know for us like vulnerability. Uh, you know, work work hard, but 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 also take time for yourself. Work life integration. You know. Um, like kindness and joy and, and and some of those things and and we we just really focused on the hiring process uh we used the who methodology approach uh, the the gh smart um method and uh and and we're really serious about about hiring especially as we started to fail a bunch <laughs> in this we got more and more focused to like stop listening to our uh to our gut and really Look, look! Look at what the the data is showing us during the the, the hiring, and then what those is the, what, people. What, you know, what is the who process? Um, so it's a it's a lot of times you would just use it for executives, and and so we do kind of like a pared down approach for for a lot of the others. But um, it's basically more scientific in nature. Like it's the you ask the same questions, right, to every single candidate, um, and and then you have multiple people in the process, but you give them like focus topics. So that the candidate isn't answering the same questions from you know seven different people, and and then you basically have this longer who process where you go through their experience and you just ask them to save five questions at every single job they've been at, um, and then and then you know you you do the like five whys right? You do the deeper question when something that they talk about comes up, and then what's really important is that before all of that you have a scorecard that is, you know, okay, these are the attributes that I'm looking for. These are the cultural values that we're going to interview around. These are the outcomes that we want to see from this position. And and then it's a little bit of an art form to get good at it. And we train all of our people in it. But um, And then you like put those puzzle pieces together as you're interviewing. And, uh, and then you all get together at the end, not having talked yet, and 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 basically say like, thumbs up, thumbs down, right? And this is why. And so it's a lot of data backed and uh, uh and so some it'll take away some of those like gut gut decisions that you make in the hiring process right and i like them because they they're, they're like me in some kind of aspect yeah exactly exactly 
So, so tell me, um, you know, you're, you're now at this incredible scale, right? You've got, you know, a product that is the market leading product. Where do you see, what do you see like is the next kind of genesis for, uh, for pet desk? Yeah. So, so now, um, you know, we, we haven't really like publicly announced it and, and everything, but we've, we, we've raised like a, a larger couple of rounds and are, are going to do some bigger things. We, we see the industry becoming uh, really focused on an all-in-one solution. And so we're bringing together, you know, an, an, an all-in-one solution, but where each company is like the best breed of, of, of whatever they do. Um, and, and, and so on the SaaS side of things, we're going to, uh, that, that's where we're going to offer, I think, like the, the best overall solution, not just the patient engagement that, that we do at Pet Desk, but everything, you know, to your, to your wallet share, like we can capture all of the wallet share at a, at a vet clinic in, in the future. Um, but, but it's still a smaller market. And so we've always known that there's going to have to be a consumer side of this, right? The pet parents are going to have to play in this. And, and because we're focused on pet health, pet health outcomes, um, that it has to be the pet care providers and the pet parents working together around the pet's health. And, and so what we've started to, to do last year, it's now really getting underway this year, but is essentially putting all of these pet health decisions that you make as a pet parent into the app right next to your veterinarian. And then, and then we help you make those decisions and then go and purchase those subscriptions, right? So whether that's getting financing, you know, a monthly insurance, uh, you know, coverage, um, uh, getting the monthly preventatives that you give them, you know, the drugs that you give them every single month, uh, uh, you know, food is, is going to be up there. Um, wellness plans, grooming, we're going to move back into grooming and boarding and, and all of that. Um, and, and this is going to be the other side of, of what we do as a business is, um, is sort of this consumer recurring revenue stream around, around pet health. Um, ultimately, we want to gather all of the data around pet health so that we can roll that back to the industry and, and you know, have 30-year-old dogs and 40-year-old cats by, by 2050. <laughs> that's nice. That's like the it. ultimate goal. I like it. Yeah. So... How do you balance? This is my last question, but you talk so much about really intense strategic planning with your leadership team. How do you balance the time allocation of strategy and planning towards execution? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, we've and we've gone through a couple of different seasons over the years of that, right? Um, you know, I think there was a time, uh, maybe like three years ago, pre-pandemic, when we did. We did too much strategic planning and, 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 you know, tried to really architect everything. Um, I think we really got it right this for, for this year. Um, and I think the, it's such a good question, but it's also a really hard question to answer. Um, I think what happened this year and why we kind of like honed into this, this good middle ground was, um, we, we we didn't we didn't spend a ton of time of strategically understanding like what are the three OKRs that we have like and, and debating it and coming up with a bunch of ideas. We just we knew like okay these are the three OKRs. Could are there maybe some other things that we could put in and we can debate about? Yes, but like 
we've got to grow our SaaS revenue. We've got to grow our pet parent revenue, and um, and and we're we're shifting from a you know growth with no profitability to a profitable growth. Like these are the three things. Like let's let's not spend any more time arguing about that. Um, and 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 these are the three things. Okay, now how do we go execute on this? Um, and and then having. I think a lot of it comes down to your leaders. If your leaders are, you know, close to the ground and understanding what it takes to execute on a day by day basis today, then, you know, as they go into strategic planning, they're going to already lean a little bit more towards the tactical execution. And um, I think it's almost, at least for SaaS and at least in our space and, and how I've seen things, it's almost always better to to be a little bit more tactical than, than strategic. Um, right. And this is, you know, sales and marketing in the beginning, we could have come up with all this crazy marketing stuff, you know, and been a little bit more strategic about how we went to partners and did everything. We didn't, we just hired a bunch of SDRs and just started calling, you know, and, and it worked and it worked better than anybody else in the space that, that does what we, we do. Um, and and so that's where I would say like I would I, I'd always when when we shifted that bias from a bias for action and execution and went a little bit more strategic that's when we got in trouble. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um. What is your favorite book besides? I mean, business book. Business book. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I, I, I like yeah. ten like, science like, fiction not, books. Not the though. Dragons of Pern or... Yeah. I haven't read that one, actually. Uh, you haven't read Pern? No. No. Oh, they're big. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's definitely Challenger Sale. It's a tie. Challenger Sale, Customer Success, and um, uh, 50... Uh, what's the, the 50 Visionary Companies one? Built to Last. Built to last. Yeah, um, that's a great my mom gave me uh, built to last is probably my favorite. My mom gave me built to last, uh, like when I was right out of school or something. And, um, that, that book is just really great. If, if you're thinking about how you're going to build a company and build a company that's going to last 50 years or a hundred years. Um, some of it now is probably a little bit out of date, but I think some of the core concepts in there are probably timeless and yeah, it's just, and it's a it's a fun read as well, and and now it's kind of like ancient histories. <laughs> some of the some of the stuff, I guess. Uh, so, what companies out there right now, tech companies, do you have a crush on? And I got this question before in this other one, and um, I don't I don't know, and maybe and maybe I need to like pay more attention to the business world. This is I I don't like I don't really follow other tech companies. Gotcha. Right? And, um, I mean, I think part of it is I have, you know, two small kids. I like playing video games. I like doing other things. And, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. So I just, I, yeah, I don't have a good answer for this one. All right. You own any stocks right now? Yes. I, uh, I, I finally got in, uh, which, and I told Ken, I was like, Ken, um, I'm, I'm actually getting in the stock market. So you should short the entire market. <laughs> And it was right before this fall. Uh, so, yeah, 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 yeah. If you're ever if you're ever wondering if if the stock market's gonna gonna drop five you know five percent, 
just call me and ask me if I just made a stock purchase and then <laughs> it your yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is why I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't put all the money in. Um, but I, I, I know myself really well and, uh, you know, used to did some trading in my twenties and stuff. And I bought the VOO, the DIA and the QQQ. So index funds. And I'm just, uh, I'm not going to try to pick stocks cause I'll get into it. And I play no limit, hold them too. Right. And I want to play it. Like I'll become a day trader before I know it. Right. Uh, exactly. right? <laughs> and, um, and you know, I like talked to some money managers and I was like, okay, maybe I just take this out of my hands and give it to them. But I was like, why, why give them 1% when nah. the index fund is going to beat them anyway. And so, exactly. you know, just, put it in the index fund and um, keep some money back for the next 10 or 20% drop and then put some more in and then just try to not pay attention. That's it. That's it. That's the goal. Taylor, Uh, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great to have you. Hopefully we'll get you again on uh, sometime soon. Yes. Um, Everybody, that is Taylor Kavada from PetDesk, founder and CEO. Taylor is intersects the world of founder and operator. Not many people can do both very well. And Taylor is my archetype for uh, the perfect CEO. So really super happy that you're on, man. Thank you, uh, David. Glad, glad to still know you and um, keep, keep kicking butt. Thank you. And thank you for this. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. All right, man. Bye. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.